Well, good morning. Welcome to Seattle, the gray, gloomy, kind of misty morning. I've, sometimes I pretend it's Seattle to just feel better about sp- summer weather being long and coming. I, I want to start this morning with an observation. And, and my observation is this, is that money has this weird way of changing the dynamics of a situation. Have you noticed this? Uh, maybe you're in business with your family, and suddenly there's a conversation about money or about assets that, that goes a little wonky, and suddenly relationships go sideways a little bit. Or, or maybe you've had this experience where you've loaned money to a friend, and suddenly it takes a little bit longer to pay back than they had promised, and suddenly that relationship starts to get a little bit weird, and they don't answer your phone calls, or they don't respond to your texts, and something just feels different. Or think about, think about infomercials, right? Infomercials are masters at using this idea of money to sort of change a dynamic. And, and I've learned that there's sort of three movements in an infomercial. Movement one is, I need to convince you to buy a product that is absolutely useless, right? So many infomercials I watch in the first 10 minutes, I think, this is the most ridiculous product I've ever seen. No one has a need for this. By the end of that 10 minutes, I think, where's my credit card? I should probably, I think I need this. But, but what they do then is they, they use money and they use a little bit of materialism to sort of sweeten the deal because what they tell you is that if you call right now, you get not one, but two of these amazing products. And, and then they, the third movement is they sweeten the deal even further and they say, if you call now, you get not one, but not two, and it's not $59.95, it's one easy payment of $19.95, right? And they use this sort of, you can have more and acquire more and spend less even while we feed our sort of consumeristic mentality. Or, or think about the dynamic of this American holiday we call Black Friday, I mean, you you would think by its name, it's sort of some remembrance of a tragic moment in our history, but Black Friday is this day when literally after we have a day of Thanksgiving, where we we eat lots of turkey and we overindulge and we're grateful for everything God has blessed us with. Literally the day after that, we look at our family members and say, you want to go to Walmart and fight for TVs? Right? And you've seen the newsreel footage of the doors opening and people running and punching other people so they can get a 60-inch TV for $150, right? And, and greed and consumerism has sort of wormed its way into the American culture. There's a licensed social worker. His name is Mel Schwartz. He wrote an article in Psychology Today where he talks about greed as an addictive dysfunction, And in this article, what he suggests is that our culture has this message that we should buy, 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 continue to spend and acquire more. And as he talks about this, he says our culture makes us all sorts of promises that if you buy more and acquire more things and more stuff, you will be smarter and you will be more attractive and you'll be more successful if we just spend, spend, spend and buy more and more things. In this article in Psychology Today, Schwartz notes that after a recent tragedy in American history, uh, the leadership of the country at the time suggested that the best way to move forward was to continue to invest in the American economy, continue to spend your money. And Schwartz makes this observation. He says, the American deity is our economy. The American economy is our unifying religion. 
I think in a lot of ways this reflects what Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, when Paul talks about greed, which is idolatry. In other words, greed is a form of idol worship. It's a form of giving worship and praise to something other than God. And so I think Schwartz's observation that the American economy is our deity is sharp and it's poignant. But towards the end of this article, Schwartz says this. He says, greed and rampant materialism act as a sort of drug. He said, and they conspire to deprive us of balanced and joyful lives. They would have us distort our lives, neglect our relationships, and impoverish our souls. The dysfunction of greed is as real and destructive as any other disorder. It contains elements of obsessive compulsive disorder and at the core renders the individual incapable of leaving and leading a fruitful life. That's a powerful statement. And we could say, well, on the one hand, when it gets to that point, yes, that's a radical example. But I think for many of us, we have experienced the claws of greed that have a way of working themselves into our heart, soul, and life. And we have this drive for more and more and more. So here's the questions I want to work through today. I want to ask the question, what is greed? What is it? And I want to ask the question, why are we greedy? Because no one wakes up and makes a conscious decision to be greedy. It's not as if we wake up one day and say, you know what? This is the moment I've been waiting for. Today's the day. I'm going to be greedy. That, that, like, it's, it's not a thing. So, so how do we become greedy? And then there's this idea of generosity. And the question is, how do we move from a life of greed to generosity? And I want to push into this question because I think for many of us, greed is the rich person's problem and generosity is the rich person's solution. And, and we excuse ourselves because we're middle class or we don't have a lot or uh, we're It's not our issue. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that greed and generosity are not just for rich people who've acquired a lot of things, that greed and generosity involve a disposition of the way that we live and lead our lives. But how do we make this switch? How do we move from greed to generosity? This is the conversation I want to push into this morning. And as we do that, I want to begin by looking at Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Here, Jesus is teaching to a crowd of people, and as he's teaching, someone calls out a question to him, and Jesus' response to this question and the parable that he tells, I think, is insightful for our conversation on greed. Luke 12, verse 13. says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain. Laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. So here's this story where this farmer has the bumper crop to end all bumper crops. I mean, in in an agricultural economy, this is the equivalent of hitting the lottery. And suddenly he has this realization that the barns that he has are not big enough to even hold all this grain that he suddenly has come into. And for him, it means financial stability. He knows he's going to have grain stored up for years to come, so he's not going to have to be as nervous about his financial well-being. And so he says, I know what I'm going to do. 
I'm not just going to build more barns. No, I'm going to tear down these barns and I'm going to build even bigger ones so that I can store all my grain for myself. And what we see is a great story that exemplifies what greed is. And I want to suggest to you that greed can simply be defined this way. Greed is about more and it's about mine. Greed is about being driven to acquire more and I'm going to use what I gain for myself. Let me read one of these, uh, a couple of these verses again and let me emphasize the number of times that I or myself are mentioned. Let me read this. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns. I will say to myself, I have surplus grain. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. At least 10 times that I counted, and that's conservative, that the words I and myself are mentioned in about three verses. This farmer, as he comes into this moment of financial success and stability, his life worldview is all about how can I use my time, talent, strength, and abilities to gather more things for myself. And greed is all about more, and it's about mine. I'm driven to acquire more, and what I get is for my benefit. But notice that Jesus makes this comment in verse 15. Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And I want to suggest to you this morning that greed is not just about more and my money, but greed is a life disposition that involves how we steward our time, talents, and abilities. For some of us, we've been greedy with the very ways we have stewarded the life and the gifts and the talents that God has given us. Notice what happens for this farmer after he comes into this unusual bumper crop and now has this financial success. Do you notice what he says? Verse 19, he says, and and I love that he talks to himself. Verse 19, and he said to himself, self, look at all this grain. You've got it made. And and what does he say? He says, I'm going to take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And what you find is that when we're greedy with our time, what matters most is my agenda. Now that the farmer has financial stability in this scenario, he says, no, I can do whatever I want. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. I'm going to be merry. There's no sense of investing in other people. There's no sense of being aware of how he might invest his time and his life in the well-being of other people and in the well-being of community. No, all he's concerned about is that I have grain for myself stored in my barns for years to come. Now, notice too that in in his phrase, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, what he suggests is that he's not going to farm the land that he's been given. And what you see is that in the way that he stewards his talents, what he believes is that his gifts are for his gain. I'm going to use the strengths and the things that God has blessed me with as a person, I'm going to use my gifts for my gain. He's not even going to use the gift that he's been given to to, to cultivate land and to produce a good crop. He's not even going to farm the land that God has blessed him with. And there's a sense in which he says, I'm going to take my talent and ability that God has given me to cultivate my land, and I'm just going to eat, drink, be merry. I'm going to sit back and not engage the way God has called and gifted and empowered me to engage. And of course, in the way that he spends his treasure, his ultimate question is, how can I save for myself? It's all about more and it's all about mine, right down to the way he spends his time, his talents, and his treasures. And there is Jesus' poignant and sharp warning, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. 
Now, what I think is fascinating about this story is the way that it ends. It says that, that God speaks this word and says, you fool, this very night, your life is going to be demanded from you. Notice the question that Jesus asks, who then will get your stuff? And what we see is that this farmer, in, in having more and mine, in, in acquiring more financial stability for himself and himself alone, that there's been a communal rupture. He's withdrawn from relationship. And notice, too, the context that this parable is taking place in. Notice verse 13. This man calls out to Jesus. You know, like someone might yell, free bird, at a concert. This guy yells, tell my brother to give me money. Right? And, and, and I love, like, I love that Jesus doesn't always stop and say, oh, buddy, I'm sorry. Hey, get share. You know, like, you, did you notice how Jesus responds? He goes, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? A pointed question. And then at first blush, I looked at that and I was like, whoa, that, that feels a little bit like, why, why didn't you just respond? But then Jesus teaching as the brilliant rabbi and the Messiah that he is, what he does is not give them the answer and say, you should share with your brother. What he does is he tells a story that forces them to do some soul searching. Because here's the reality. If they go to a court of arbitration and the judge pounds the gavel and says, you must share the inheritance with your brother, the damage has already been done. What Jesus is calling their attention to is the kind of culture in which one brother inherits a large sum of money and is not aware of the needs of his other brother who inherited none. And Jesus says, what about that culture? What about that relationship? The very fact that you are having this question and pushing someone else to make this judgment for you already demonstrates the relational brokenness that greed has, has manifested in that relationship. And it's in verse 15 then that Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And here's where we get some hints at the, the dynamics of how greed works. In, in verse 15, Jesus said that word, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And you'll notice verse 15, watch out, there's an exclamation point. It's emphatic, watch out. And, and I think the way that greed works is it subtly creeps in until it has control of how we steward our life. Right? Again, no one wakes up and makes a conscious decision unless you're Ebenezer Scrooge in the Christmas Carol story, right? Nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to live a greedy life. And the problem is, greed begins before we're wealthy. We often think, well, it's the rich people who are greedy. No, 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 no. The Bible doesn't say that. It says the love of money, but it doesn't say the possession of money is wrong. The problem is, for many of us, we start life without much resources, you know, maybe you're, you're right post-college, you're getting your first career job, but you've got student loans and you've got a car payment and, and you're, you are just starting out in this position so it doesn't pay super well. And what we tell ourselves is, I don't have much money, so what I need to do is acquire more for myself so that I can be generous. The problem is, is we set a pattern of more and mine early on in life and, and it never gets easier to give. If we're not generous with little, we are not likely to be generous when we have much because it becomes a pattern and a way of living that we adopt. And there's Jesus' word, watch out, be on your guard. Be intentionally aware of the potential for greed to creep in and grab hold of your life. Two other dynamics of greed. I want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 to flesh this out a little bit. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 9 says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, 
And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. Here's the second dynamic of greed. Greed is a trap that leads to temptation. Notice how Paul, he's teaching Timothy here, and he says, you know, you need to be careful of a desire to acquire more things and more stuff. Warn those who would have this desire to be wealthy and to be rich. He says it's a temptation that that causes it to become a trap in your life. And when we're driven by more and by mind, it becomes a cycle that's hard to get out of. The Roman philosopher Seneca, he said, it's not he who has little, but the one who desires more who's poor. Let me say that again. He said, it's not he who has little, but he who desires more who is poor. And what Seneca is getting at is this idea that when you're driven for more, there's a sense in which enough is never enough. A rabbi by the name of Benjamin Bleck says it this way. He says, greed will always leave you dissatisfied because you'll never be able to get everything you desire. Greed never allows you to think you have enough. It always destroys you by making you strive even harder for more. Enough is never enough, and so greed becomes a trap, and I think it begins to lead to temptations in our life that maybe normally we would have never even considered. Maybe you're, you're out to dinner with friends, and you, you've already spent the money you budgeted that month for like going out to dinner, but your friends decide, hey, we want to go to this nice steakhouse, and they all get a, a nice porterhouse, so you think, well, I can't be the cheap guy who just gets soup, so you also order the porterhouse. And then you have this moment where you think, well, if, if I drop my company name one time, I could call this business, and then I can use the business credit card to pay for this, and, and we rationalize things in our mind that we wouldn't normally rationalize. Or, or maybe you're a waiter or a waitress, and you work at a restaurant where it's common practice to divide your tips among the other tables, but one night, somebody leaves a rather large cash tip, and you look around and you think, you know what? I work harder than everybody else. I think I'm just going to pocket this. I'm not going to tell anybody else that came in. And suddenly, that desire for more and for mine has manifested itself in a temptation that we wouldn't normally open our lives to. And the third dynamic of greed is this. Greed is a wrong desire leading to a disastrous outcome. Do you notice how Paul said that? He said, many who desire to be rich wandered from the faith. And, and, and this is a powerful image. He says, and they have pierced themselves through with many griefs. That in their greed and their desire to have more and mind to acquire things for their own use, that wrongful desire has led them to a place of many griefs. So we come back to this truth that Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. Jesus says, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Greed can subtly creep in. It can open our lives up to temptation. It's a wrong desire that leads to disastrous outcome. But Jesus reminds us the truth in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, is that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. But I think so much of what we're taught and so much of what is modeled in the culture around us is that acquiring more for myself is really where life does consist. And Jesus presents us a kingdom-oriented other way of living where stuff Possessions don't have to be the total consistency of life. But here's this key question again. So why are we greedy? If greed is a trap that leads to temptation, if many in being greedy have pierced themselves through with with many uh, uh, griefs, as Paul says, why do we become greedy? And I, I think greed is not just because we have an inordinate desire for stuff. I think greed ultimately comes down to a misplaced hope. 
And because it's a misplaced hope, greed results in a misplaced trust. Again, look at Luke chapter 12, verse 19. This is that parable of the the rich fool. It says, verse 19, And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. There's a sense in which this farmer now goes, now that I'm financially stable, now I can actually enjoy life. Now I can eat, I can drink, I can be merry. Where before I had to worry about my financial stability, now I can take it easy. And I think what he reveals in this moment is where his hope ultimately lied. He's got a misplaced hope in things and stuff and possessions and financial stability to provide for him the things that he wants. What I think is fascinating is right after this parable, Jesus in verse 22 of Luke chapter 12 turns to his disciples. It says this, verse 22, then Jesus said to his disciples, he continues teaching and pushing in. He says, therefore, I tell you, because of this parable of the rich fool, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear, for the life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they don't sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or I spend. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Notice what what Jesus calls the people to recognize. He's teaching now to his disciples. These are the ones that are bought in. They're following Jesus. He says, listen, pay attention to this parable and recognize that everything that you have is because God is the God who provides in your life. Greed comes from a misplaced hope and a misplaced trust that says, I need to acquire more for myself because when I get stability in terms of what I own and my financial position, then I'll believe that there's good things in my future. And Jesus says, no, life is more than that. Trust that it's your Father who provides and switch your hope, not from to your possessions, but onto the God who provides for you. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says this pretty explicitly. 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul says this. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, catch this, nor put their hope in wealth, which is uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who provides for us everything for our enjoyment. Paul gets it. He says to Timothy, who is a young leader, he says, be very careful about using your position as a leader for financial gain. He says, there's false teachers that are doing that. Paul says, you live differently. Don't put your hope in wealth. It's uncertain. He says, rather put your hope in God. And and I think here's the reality is that greed is an attempt to find safety and security and comfort outside of God's provision. It's an attempt to find safety and security and comfort outside of, uh, of God's provision. What it is, it's an attempt to say, I'm going to take control of my financial future because I don't trust that God will provide. So when we make the, the switch from greed to generosity, if you want to put up that bridge illustration, we have to recognize that it's hope and hope rightly anchored that transforms how we steward our life. It's not a, because here's what we do, right? And we say, okay, I'm greedy, which means I need to give away my stuff. And if I give away my stuff, then I won't be greedy. The problem is what I've seen that result in is just a lot of resentful givers who feel compelled and obligated to give. 
Generosity is not about giving away our stuff. It's about stewarding what God has given us for the blessing and the flourishing of another. This is a fundamental difference. So, so what happens is, is we, we take our trash to goodwill and call it generosity. Can I be honest? But that we have so much to donate to goodwill is not a symbol of our generosity. It's a symptom of the excess in which we live. We have so much stuff that our houses are full of stuff that we don't even need. And so we cast off the least of it that we really don't like. We send that to goodwill. That's not generosity. Generosity is a fundamental disposition. It's a shift. It's a change in how we live and steward our life because we have hope that God can indeed provide for us. And it's that hope that frees us up to say, my time, talents, and treasures are not for myself alone. So what is hope? You have this definition in your note guide. Donald Gowan, a theologian, defines it this way. He says, hope is the confident expectation of good in the future and is dependent on the goodness of God. Hope says, I believe that there are good things. I know that there are good things to come because God is good. And so when we talk about how hope reorients our life, it's recognizing that our future is good and bright and promising. doesn't mean there won't be difficult things, but it believes that even in difficulties, God will show himself faithful because he is good. And what greed does is greed unmasks the false foundation of our hope, and it unmasks a feeble faith that believes our well-being depends entirely on our ability to provide for ourselves. Notice what Jesus said in Luke 12, 28. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, catch this, how much more will he clothe you? And then he tags this on, oh, you of little faith. And as I read that this week, I had to pause and have a moment of confession where I said, God, I'm sorry that my faith is so little that I don't believe that the God who created the universe and the God that brought me into existence is capable of providing me with food to eat and clothes to wear. And what greed does is it unmasks a feeble faith that says, I have to take care of myself first because I don't trust that God is capable of providing. So here's this key question. Do you have the things that you possess because you worked for them or because God gave them to you? Do you have the things that you possess because you worked for them or because God gave them to you? And, and if you're like me, as I thought about that question this week, my knee-jerk response is to say, I worked hard for everything I have. There is blood, sweat, and tears that went into working for everything that I have in my life. But what we fail to recognize is that the time that you have to work, the strengths that God has given you, the physical health that he has blessed you with, all of that is a gift of his grace. I have no control over any of that. And even my ability to work and earn money and, and resources, all of that, my intellect, everything is a gift of God's grace. And if it wasn't for his provision, I wouldn't have anything. But we've bought into this idea that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that with ingenuity and hard work and creativity, we can become successful. It's the American way. It's the American dream. And the problem is it's all built on a premise that's a lie. It all neglects to recognize that everything we have is the result of a loving God who says, let me provide for your good. So how do we cultivate this virtue of generosity? It's about having a hope rightly placed in the God who provides and that frees us up to be generous. When you continue reading Luke chapter 12, in verse 32, it says this, 
Jesus continues teaching, and he's just taught the, the story of the rich young fool, and he's just taught about how God clothes the flowers and feeds the birds. Verse 32, he says, don't be afraid, little flock. Catch this. I love this. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Whew. That the God of all creation sent his son to die for us and says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom so you can come in and have life and have relationship with me. Verse 33, so he says this, so sell your possessions and give to the poor. Jesus doesn't start and say, listen, you greedy people, go sell what you have and give to the poor. No, no, he says, listen, it's about a misplaced hope. When we get hope anchored in the God who provides rightly, what it does is he says, you recognize that God has invited you into relationship, that God has given you the keys to the kingdom and said, I want to do life with you. I'll provide for you. And because we have that hope, we can go and be generous because we recognize that God is capable of continuing to provide. And what happens is that generosity, it reframes, uh, generosity anchored in hope reframes the way we use our time, talents, and treasures. It's no longer about my agenda, but it's about the needs of others. It's no longer about my gift for my gain, but what it recognizes is that my strengths and weaknesses, my talents are God's gift and my give. What it recognizes is that my treasure, my financial resources are not just to be saved for myself, but they're to be a blessing for others. And it fundamentally changes how we use our time, our talents, and our treasures. Recognizing that the strengths that God has given you are a gift in your life, not just for your gain, but for the benefit of the community around you. If greed is about more and about mine, generosity is about sufficient and serve. Generosity recognizes that what God provides and what God brings in my life is sufficient for me and I am called to serve others with the things that God has blessed me with. So how, how do we anchor our hope rightly? I wanna suggest some practices for you. I've got four practices that I encourage you to incorporate this week that will help us shift our hope away from our stuff to have a hope rightly anchored in God. And the first is this, I want us to practice prayerfully reflective generosity. And what I mean by prayerfully reflective generosity is I mean, I want us to reflect and pray on both sides of being generous. I want you to spend time this week praying and asking God, God, what would you have in my time, talents, and treasures? What would you have me invest in someone else? And maybe God says, you know what? You've been a high-profile business leader for a long time. And now that you're starting to hand off leadership responsibilities, you have time. I want you to invest and pour into the most overlooked people in our community. I want you to mentor young adults. I want you to, to go every week to the assisted living facility and pour into the lives of others and build relationships. Maybe it's, it's your talents that God says, listen, I, I've gifted you with experiences and intellect and the ability to make wise financial decisions. I want you to become a financial coach for others, or I want you to teach other Christian business leaders how they can live a life of high moral standards and a business culture that's cutthroat. Or maybe God has blessed you in a way financially where you have more than you need, and God says, listen, I want you to give away. And by the way, this isn't just for the rich. Then on the other side of that generosity, as you give of your time, as you give of your talents, as you give of your treasure, in a sincere and honest moment, I want you to bow before the creator of the universe and say, God, thank you that you have blessed me 
with the time, with the talents, with the treasure, with the ability to invest and be a blessing in the life of another. Because what it does is that it acknowledges the true source of everything that we have. Two more practices. I'm going to hit these quick. Gratitude and worship. What gratitude does is is it pushes us towards a place of recognizing that everything that we have, we have to be thankful for. Gratitude causes us to pause and say, God, I recognize that the things that you brought in my life are from you and I'm thankful. What worship does is worship is a moment of remembering the God who has revealed himself to us in the way that he's blessed us with time, talents, and treasures. And what it does is worship says, God, thank you for this. I give you praise and worship that's rightly yours because you've blessed me. And really when it comes down to it, I think living a generous life is about having a missional life focus. It's about recognizing that the call in your life is not to use your time, talents, and treasures for your gain, but it's to recognize that God is doing a revolution of redemption and that God is raising up the body of believers to be a people who bear witness to the hope of redemption and resurrection, who bear witness to the idea that God can restore and redeem all things. And what God is calling us to do is to be a people who use our time, talents, and treasures, not just to care for our needs, but to make a revolutionary change by the grace of God through the God being made known. So as we, as we close this morning, I'm going to have Pastor Dave come up. Uh, he oversees the way that we do missions and the way that we work with missionaries here. And, and Pastor Dave is going to talk about what it is and what it means to lead a missional life, a life when we, when we're, in which we use our time, talents, and treasures to have a missional kingdom impact. I love when we begin to talk about what it looks like to live missionally. This is a big deal, and I love it, and everything that we've talked about has led up to what our response is supposed to look like. And so I'm going to take just a couple minutes and share with you four ways that we can begin to do this. And my, my hopes is you've been here long enough that you've heard this before, that this is not new things. But um, my notes didn't make it into the guide, so you can use the top corner like I did to write these down. Uh, so don't put your pen away yet. I still have a couple more things for you to write down. Okay, so the first thing to be aware of is just simply be aware. Be aware of what it looks like to live life missionally, right? So as Grace Point, we support 15 missionaries around the world. Every Sunday, they are doing the same things that we're doing. They're worshiping God all over the place. We have two missionaries that we support that are in Haiti. We have four to five that are serving in Muslim cultures right now. And we can't technically disclose where they're at for security purposes because what they're doing, they're at risk. They're, they are preaching the gospel in the places where it's, it's not highly recommended. Right? So the first thing that I'm going to say is be aware of some of the people that we support. If you don't have a prayer card for one of our missionaries, as you leave today, they're up at our missional board. And that's out of the way on purpose. Because I want you to go up and I want you to look at the board to see who we actually support. And the reality is, this isn't a short time thing. This is a long time ask. So I want you to be, be reminded consistently to be able to pray for these people on a daily basis. Because when I, when I begin to ask our missionaries, how can we help you? How can we support you? Point number two is they always ask for the same thing. They say, pray. Pray for me. That's point number two. And I say, that's it? Yes, because they believe in the power of prayer. Because prayer will fundamentally change how they do ministry if we all gather together throughout the week and we can pray for what the ministry that they're a part of 
their ministry will begin to change. And I can tell you, there's been times that I've prayed, I've, I've felt compelled to pray for my, our missionaries in the middle of the night, and I, I messaged them the next day, and I said, hey, you were on my heart last night, I prayed for you. And they said, thank you. That was transformative in the ministry that I'm a part of. Because they were either in the middle of a conversation or had a hard um, situation that came about, that the prayer that, that we actually sent did something. But you can only do that if you're aware of who we're supporting. The next thing, and I think this might be one of the most important things, especially talking about generosity, generosity today, is to give. Right? This is where Aaron talks about this awkward moment when we have these friendships where people are like, oh, let's talk about money a little bit. But this is so important. And the one thing that I know about Grace Point is we are a very generous church. And I, I love and I appreciate that. Last year alone, we gave $173,000 to missions. Those are people going on short-term trips to full-time missionaries that we support and even juice just through our general fund. $173,000, which is, which is pretty amazing. But I'm going to ask you this. What would it look like if we had more resources to support what God is doing around the world? Think of what we can do to come around and support these. Each month, I'm, I have three to four different requests for missionaries trying to get onto the field, and I can't support everybody. But what if we had more resources to come alongside these guys to be able to support them? I asked somebody from Global Partners about the trends in missional givings. And they said most new missionaries getting onto the field are only supported 20% by the local church because the local church isn't getting funds to support missions anymore. And so I'm going to ask you to be a part of this. There's several ways that you can do this. You can do this Sunday morning when we pray over our tithes and our offering. You can write missional giving on that, and that'll go right towards our missionaries. The other thing you can do is you can do it online. You can set up a recurring payment online for missional giving, and that's going to go directly to our missionaries. And the thing that I'm going to ask is, I'm not going to ask you to respond today, and that's, that might be scary on my part, because this is a really good opportunity for you guys to be able to help and donate it, but I really want this idea of generosity to, to settle, to, to set a little bit, right? Pray about it. What is God inviting you into? Be a part of this. Right? Normally, we do, we do pledge cards. Um, but one of the things I, I've really felt compelled to this year is to not do pledge cards this year. But what I want to do is I want to pledge to you something. Each month, I'm going to include one of these in our bulletins with a little update about what's happening with missions, just once a month. And I want this to be your reminder. This is, how are you a part of what God's doing around the world? So when you see these throughout the months in our bulletin, let that be your subtle reminder. By saying, hey, are you, are you actively being aware and praying um, and being a part of what God is doing around the world? And the last thing I want to do is say, if God is stirring on your heart today, maybe an opportunity to go. Our point number four is to go. That you would not subside that calling in our lives. Right? We, we provide about three to four different mission trips opportunities throughout the, out the, out the year. We believe in short-term missions, right? From our youth to our college to adults, there's so many opportunities to be able to go. If God is calling you to go, let me know. Don't neglect that calling into your life. And maybe there's a calling into ministry that he's really nudging on your heart. Don't neglect that calling. God's doing amazing things around the world, and I want to invite you into the opportunity to go. And the thing that I want to end with that I think ties in so perfectly today is that God's not going to call you to go unless you're doing it here. He's not going to call us to go somewhere, to serve somewhere else, unless you're doing ministry here in your own context. 
So I say, realize the realm of influence that you currently have that God might be calling you into. Maybe it's serving here on Sunday morning. Maybe it's serving at, at your work and being able to, to mentor and um, be in relationship with other people. Maybe it's simply learning what it looks like to serve your neighbor. Those are really big missional opportunities. And I think of the impact we can make if we're all doing it at the same time. So what I want to do is close in a word of prayer. We have a prayer team that is in the chapel after service. If God has been nudging on your heart or really urging you just to, to break down, to, um, to just join the mission of what God has for us. So right now, would you please join me in a closing word of prayer? God, thank you for today. Thank you for the powerful message of hope that you want us to learn to abide in. God, thank you for speaking through Pastor Aaron today and just truly convicting our hearts of what it, what it looks like to live a generous life. It's not about giving our stuff away because we've already consumed too much. God, you want us to work on the foreside, on the front side. God, prepare, begin working in my heart now to not consume the things that I don't need to, and to not think about things that are mine because you've so graciously gifted us with them. God, I pray that you allow us to be good stewards and be able to recognize it as such. God, I, continue, I, I pray for our missionaries around the world today for those that are doing amazing things, that are presenting the gospel to people for the first time. God, I pray for our, our missionaries today that you would be with them, you would empower them, and that we can stand next to them in ministry. God, I pray for all this in your name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. You're dismissed.